Photoshelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi. And I'm Sarah Jacobs. Happy New Year, Sarah Jacobs. Happy 2021, Alan. Hey, at the end of 2020, you picked up a new Canon R5. How's that going for you? Oh, man, it is exciting. <laughs> the autofocus on that is unbelievable. Oh, I don't want to know. Unbelievable. It's as though I have all new lenses, even though I had to get the adapter mount. Um, So I'm using my old lenses, but it feels like I have new ones. And it's just unbelievable. I've barely cracked the surface in terms of what it can do, but I'm exploring and it's a lot of fun. Uh, I started last year, beginning of 2020, by saying I wasn't going to buy any photo equipment. And I almost made it. Because at the very end of the year, I, I bought a used 600 millimeter lens off of eBay. Um, oh, right. I've been using it to shoot surfing and it's fantastic. That's great. I love a good eBay find. <laughs> Speaking of turning what's old new again, uh, photojournalist Kenneth Jureski is starting a print publication called The Curious Society. There have been some early uh, announcements in Facebook and some other photojournalist Uh, haunts online. Ken is arguably best known for the photo of uh, the Iraqi soldier who was in a tank when it was hit by a bomb. Uh, It wasn't published at the time. Um, And then there was a big article in the Atlantic, I believe it was, uh, talking about the the value of that photo and maybe why and why it should not have been published at the time. Uh, He also has a really great interview series on YouTube called Talking Pictures, where he interviews various photojournalists uh, and photo editors about their process. And he goes uh, into talking about his editing process and his toning process for his own work. But this Curious Society thing popped up on my radar last week, and there was a lot of enthusiasm uh, from the photojournalist community about the idea of creating what is a quarterly PJ-specific print publication that has a membership subscription starting at $300 per year. What was your take, Sarah? Well, the work that they have previewed on the website um, is absolutely stunning and such strong work, famous imagery. So that really pumps me up in terms of like what will be in issue one of this thing. But I am concerned. I mean, launching a subscription-based print publication in 2021 I mean, it seems a little crazy. You it's know what I mean? It's a little risky. Yeah, it's a little risky. You know, <laughs> I was thinking about it in terms of, I, I think the public's appetite for engaging in multiple subscriptions has really changed over the past three to five years. Because now, you know, when you first signed up for Netflix and you were getting like CDs in the mail, it, it made sense because the alternative was to go to Blockbuster and, you know, rent uh, uh, DVDs or, or watch movies that way. Um, I think Mm. because of Apple Music and Spotify and Disney Plus, uh, a lot of consumers have gotten used to having multiple subscriptions at play. So that to me doesn't seem completely out of the ordinary. It does feel very risky to do a print only publication that's quarterly based. And the reason why I think that is obviously print is, you know, some people say it's a dinosaur can states in his long and very entertaining FAQ that photos look best in print. And I think one could argue that that's that's very true. But, you know, when you get a newspaper, a printed newspaper on a daily basis or a magazine on a monthly basis, 
it's still frequent enough where you're sort of anticipating that thing showing up in the mail or on your front doorstep. When it's quarterly, I kind of feel like you forget that it exists. And then Mm, it shows up and then maybe there's a few days of like, oh, wow, this is great. Or a week of this is great. But when the renewal comes around again the next year, are you going to feel like the draw was enough to renew it? That would be kind of my fear. Yeah, I'm. I'm also um, a little curious who they who they are marketing this to, who they expect to subscribe, um, and yeah, just what type of reader they're looking for. They need three thousand more subscriptions at the moment in order to print the first one, which is not not a small amount. <laughs> right. So Ken <laughs> states on his FAQ that they, they want 4,000 subscribers or they need 4,000 subscribers before they print the first issue, which he hopes to come out in the spring. And his goal is to hit 20,000 paying subscribers. I guess there's a student rate at $170 a year or some, some, somewhere in that ballpark, but the, you know, the average person will be paying $300 a year. And yeah. the intent is to be able to pay photographers a space rate. So you would be getting $500 a page, which kind of harkens back to, you know, the quote golden age of print publishing, if you will, um, Mm -hmm. which makes it very feasible for photographers, especially, you know, he's targeting freelance photographers uh, to do work that way. But, you know, as someone who's built a couple businesses, subscription-based businesses, PhotoShelter being one, Hotjobs, my first company being another, getting to those first thousand customers, man, that is... That is hard work. Mm. So to your point, after you kind of preach to the converted, that is the photojournalists who are excited about this, who is your addressable market? Right. That will be very interesting to see. On his YouTube channel, he also has a video um, of how he tones and edits images. And I found that very enjoyable. I watched a lot of that <laughs> kind of in learned the background some, some tips there, <laughs> earlier huh? today. I was looking at uh, what other kind of boutique or niche photo magazines exist out there because there's always like these, you know, these quarterly rags out there that are lifestyle-ish or fashion-specific, street photography-specific, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we found a few of them and I was looking at at the cover price for some of these. There's, for example, Yet Magazine, $17 per issue, three times a year. Aperture, everyone knows Aperture. That's $75 a year for a quarterly publication. You found a couple of other ones out there. Yeah, there's Gut Magazine, um, which focuses with sort of an avant-garde publication focusing on conceptual photography. Um, that is 11 pa- euros. Euros, <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's 11 euros. Um, and it's also published quarterly. That's been coming out since 2005. Um, Foam. Have you ever been to Foam in Amsterdam, Alan? I have not. Oh, man, it is a fantastic photography museum. Um, and I went last summer uh, and they had an amazing Alex Pranger exhibition. Anyway, they have a publication that comes out uh, and that costs $64 a year. So, yeah, you know, he, he makes a point of really explaining a lot of his thinking, which I thought was actually very, very helpful because... You know, part of market marketing is countering objections that consumers will have before they pull the trigger, right? And one thing that he says is the cost of producing a print publication is not reflected 
in the price of that publication because it's offset by basically subsidies, a.k.a. advertising. And Ken wants to initially shun any sort of advertising. He said he's open to sponsorship opportunities uh, later on, but he realizes, as many people have said, that in today's digital age, when we're using things for free or things that are heavily subsidized like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, we're the product. They're selling our data to other advertisers, and he wants to avoid that situation. And so part of the positioning is he wants people to pay what it actually costs to produce great work. I don't think that there's any dispute that the work is going to be great. You know, between Ken as a photojournalist and his friends over at, uh, you know, a lot of his uh, friends over at Contact Press Images and people that he's known in the industry for the past 20, 30 years, there's no doubt that he's going to be able to attract sort of the cream of the crop for photojournalists. $300, though, is still $300. Yeah, especially in after this pandemic year, I think a lot of people are going to have, you know, a hard time getting that out of their pocket. I sent him some interview questions. He he agreed to be interviewed about this, so hopefully that'll be published next week, and we'll have a little bit more detail on that. But I brought up this idea of how some journalists and photojournalists and photographers are using platforms like Patreon or Substack, which are self-publishing uh, platforms where the individual or individuals can sort of control their own lists. And we mentioned a few months back Gary He's Michelin star uh, newsletter called Astrolabe, and he's charging $60 a year. And one of the big questions was, who's the addressable market? And, and Gary said, well, in New York, there's all these Michelin-starred restaurants and there's all these foodies. So there is a very obvious market for that and people who, who want the inside scoop. Um, and so I, I think that that price point um, and the way that he's thinking about it makes sense to me. I was looking specifically for photographers. So Gary is taking the foodie angle with great journalism and great photography because he's a fantastic food photographer. And when I searched for photography and photographers, there were only about a dozen or two dozen photographers, and all of them were free from my cursory look. Uh, Brian Formals, who, who we know, has a free uh, newsletter using that system. Uh, CPH Mag has a free newsletter. And it feels like all they did was move their old newsletters onto this platform as a way to do their list management. So I'm not sure that I've seen any photographers, individual photographers, create a subscription-based uh, patronage system that's been successful. So it's, it, it'll be interesting to see what becomes of the Curious Society. Absolutely. Um, writer Taylor Lorenz wrote up a great piece for Neiman Lab all about journalists and kind of what to expect as they go on this journey of trying to get subscribers, you know, using things like Substack or pa like we've discussed Patreon um, to kind of build this fan base. And she reports on internet culture, basically. So she is talking to journalists, telling them, look, we can learn from the mistakes that influencers have made in the past 15 years. Um, and one thing is you've got to be super adaptable. You've got to switch up what you're going to do um, based on what your audience wants and really listening to what your audience wants to do. It's a fantastic write-up. Um, and I think that any photojournalists or, or photographers that are looking to kind of build their own little community um, and have them pay them for their content should give this a read. 
The one thing that struck me, well, t- two things that, that Taylor mentions in her article. The, the first is she points out that burnout is a real problem with influencers because mm-hmm. you have to feed the machine on a daily basis, if not multiple times a day. And it's really hard as an individual to s- sustain doing that 24-7, 365 a year. So that would be sort of one caution. The other thing that seems antithetical to journalism to me is the notion of a journalist catering to the whims of their audience to retain their audience interest. Because journalism to me specifically, you know, especially when it comes to local journalism, is all about uncovering stuff. Uncovering mm. malfeasance, uncovering fraud that's happening or bribes that are happening at the city council level, et cetera, et cetera. And if people are like, well, we want to hear more about Kim Kardashian, then you are not, <laughs> you're not being a journalist, you know, in a lot of ways. And then it's almost mm. like, okay, then why are we, why are we actually doing this then? It, it's, it's a confusing proposition to me where journalists become celebrities you know, and you see it on Twitter a lot because some of these journalists have, you know, one million followers and, and it's, yeah. it's crazy. Yes. Journalists are very good at growing uh, their audiences online. I am always in awe. And you know why? It's because they are writers. So they know how to do these hot takes on literally anything that is happening. Right. Right. <laughs> well, anyway, look for this interview with uh, Ken Jareski later next week, hopefully. Um, we'd love to provide you with more information about that. But you can find that website at curioussociety.org and you can sign up to subscribe, be a patron, be a, there's all these different levels of sponsorship, a benefactor, foundation member. I forgot to mention that one of the very, very cool things that they're doing is an annual get together. So assuming that we're out of COVID hell in the fall, uh, he's planning on doing an annual event limited to about 500 people where you can come talk to photographers and editors about the process. So it could be a very, very neat event for photographers to attend, photojournalists to attend. Absolutely. In case you missed it, the CASE Act passed in the last week of 2020. And for those of you who aren't familiar, it is a, an act that's been a long time coming that basically creates a small claims court, if you will, for copyright violations. So instead of having to go through the federal judiciary uh, to lodge complaints where you've been infringed, um, the CASE Act establishes a tribunal uh, run out of copyright offices, and statutory damages are capped at $15,000 versus $150,000. Decisions are not precedential, so you don't have to worry that your case becomes precedent for other cases in the future. And, and you're not bound to use it. If you have been infringed and you want to take it to federal court, you can do that. And if you bring a case against someone through the tribunal, they can decline to be, quote, prosecuted or tried through that tribunal. So it, it, it's a very interesting uh, mechanism that hopefully will be speedier uh, and will cost photographers less. I have a lot of questions about it because it's still like the tribunal hasn't yeah. been formed yet. You know, they have a year mm. to do that and a 180 day extension. We don't really know the mechanics of how it's going to work. We don't know what sort of caseload they're going to have. So how long you're going to have to wait 
uh, to use it. We don't know who the people on the tribunal are going to be. Um, <laughs> so it remains to be seen, but I kind of feel like it might be a good thing for photographers. And yeah. all the trade associations were very pro Case Act. That's great. I do think that this means that more photographers will be going to court over copyright infringement. So my first huge question was, what is the threshold for saying I will use the tribunal versus going to federal court? So if I have an image that's stolen on Instagram by a brand and I say, well, you know, it's Instagram and it's a tiny square. And so I don't want to go through all the rigmarole of federal court. I'll just take them to the tribunal. Is that, is that going to be sort of the typical use case? for this. Hmm. It's unclear to me because if, if a brand's infringing you, then why wouldn't you go for the $150,000? Right. Although, you right. know, in federal court, if you're going to go for statutory damages, you need to have the image registered with the copyright office. I can't remember off the top of my head whether you need it registered to claim statutory damages uh, through the tribunal. So I'll have to check on that. Um, hmm. That's like a whole podcast oh, in yeah. of itself. And and you also have to have, of course, your stuff registered within a certain amount of months of having it published. Yeah. But I'm also blanking on the uh, amount. 90 days, which, you know, everyone should be publishing. Days. I mean, I say this all the time and I've only published a few times throughout the year. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's... <laughs> okay, but throughout the year, yeah, good for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I, great. I yeah. feel like it's, uh, <laughs> it's common sense that everyone agrees with. And yet, since it's not completely automated, it's something that just sort of falls by the wayside sometimes. I think all in all, it's probably a, a positive thing. And I think that if it turns out not to be a good idea, then people will just decline to use it and then it will wither on the vine. We shall see. So editor of the U.S. Face uh, magazine, Trey Taylor, who reports endlessly on celebrities and celebrity culture, tweeted out something that caught my eye. Um, and it was a photo of a Madison Avenue luxury high-rise building that had an ad printed on its scaffolding um, that was a print of the Jerry Seinfeld New York Times op-ed piece, quote, so you think New York is dead. What, did you read that piece in the New York Times this I summer, I sure Alan? did, and we've talked endlessly about the photo that was used in it. Yes. So under the headline, um, it's coupled with a photograph of Jerry that was taken by photographer Daniel Arnold. Um, and it's you know, it was taken in the times of COVID, so it was taken via FaceTime. Jerry is on Daniel's laptop, essentially, um, and the laptop is in Daniel's bedroom. So this giant printout of the article is used as an ad for this luxury building. So Trey Taylor was like, what's the deal with this? Like, did the photographer get paid by the luxury building, you know, to have their image reused of Jerry? And Daniel R. Arnold actually tweeted back at Trey um, with a screen grab of the email that he received from the Times legal team, letting him know that, the, that this luxury building had reached out to them and that they were going to allow them to print the article for their ad gratis. So no pay. It's no pay. Insane. Um, and Trey replied, uh, you know, confused. He was like, so does that mean the Times was asking for your approval or not? And Daniel just replied, I got paid four fifty for this. Okay, so based on this information, I am gathering that, that Daniel was hired under a work for hire contract from the Times for four fifty. Yeah. Do you think that read is right, Alan? 
I think that's right. I don't. I don't think he got an additional four fifty for this. I think yeah, he was on a work for hire yeah. contract. The, the day rate for the Times is four fifty, so he got a day rate for the original assignment, and then the licensing group at the Times decided to give it to, to this group. I mean, this is the thing. So let me read this. It says. I work in the licensing group at the Times. This is from the email. A real estate developer on the Upper East Side contacted Jerry Seinfeld about using a page reprint of his opinion piece as a building scaffolding wrap, and we've agreed to provide them with the rights to do, to do this gratis. Mock-up below. So a real estate developer contacted Jerry Seinfeld, and he said it was okay, <laughs> and so they bypassed the photographer? I mean, I, I think on the so. one hand, you know, it's sort of like, well, that's what you get for signing the work for hire agreement. On the other hand, this is a luxury condo developer and it's, it's yeah. multi-millionaire Jerry Seinfeld. Like, why are they right. bypassing the artist in this case? I, I don't know. And I'm, I'm like annoyed that the times, uh, which notified Daniel of all of this was just like. Yep, like this is what's going to happen. <laughs> can you please send us a high-res version of the image so that we can print it on this <laughs> yeah. massive luxury app? That was the other part in the bottom of the email. Please send us a higher resolution version of it. It's like, you know what? You upsize it yourself. <laughs> you upsize Why don't you it. You do some you work. You pay me money yeah. and then I send the higher res. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, not not quite the way that I wanted to start 2021, but you know, I guess <laughs> uh, guys like Todd Bigelow have been saying don't sign those work for hires forever. And here's another reason why you shouldn't sign those work for hires. Yeah, because you never know what luxury building is going to want to print your picture and put it on and the And that's scaffolding. not even a hypothetical anymore. That literally happens with this image. <laughs> Boy, exactly. Well, you know what? Ugh. We love this image. We love the series of, you know, the pandemic portraiture that Daniel did. I'm really sorry that it had to come to this. Um, and, you know, photographers got to push back against the work for higher contracts. It's, it's not it's not fair for the New York Times to be doing this. I agree fully. Well, that's the show for this week. We have a lot more business related things coming up next week that you're definitely going to want to hear about. So stay tuned. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Lots of stuff. <laughs> Lots of stuff on the list. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. We'll talk to you next week. Bye bye. PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.